I'm just really excited to uh, open the Word of God again to you. It's a privilege to do that. I enjoy the, uh, the, the prompt to get up and uh, get to preach and uh, to open the Bible to you. And this is everything to do with God and what He's doing in your life. And it's everything about what the Word of God, how, why and how He designed this morning for this Word to be preached to you. That's what is happening in the dynamics of preaching and preaching within God's plan and providence. Why did he set the table this way? It's like we're the children coming to dinner and mom has laid the, the table out, the spread for us to eat. And we have to say, okay, why, you know, why is this nutritious? Well, this is the nutrition God, very God has dialed up for you this morning. And um, I hope it is uh, apparent as to why He's uh, put us in this text this morning. It's uh, amazing to think about the parables of Matthew 13. These are seven word pictures, illustrations, where Jesus is in a boat, probably seated as a rabbi, almost on the throne of teaching an apocalyptic or future end times message to say, where are you in light of the end? This world's going somewhere, and he wants to use these illustrations to wake everybody up to the reality of God and him as judge and where things are going. We need to have a read on things and understand where God is working in the world and in particular how he's ruling inside of hearts. And the disciples, not just the 12, but all believers, those who are on the beach listening in as Jesus is out on the boat in Galilee, they're dialed in and they later come up to him and say, why are you teaching in parables? Verse 10 of 13. Um, And explain to us what you meant. The other gospels uh, kind of have them asking that question. What did you mean by the first parable? The parable of the soils, the hard soil, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, the good soil. What did that really mean? They're interested in that parable because they're dialed into the fact that Christ is teaching in a uniquely different way for a purpose and he means something by what he just said. The rest of the crowd, by and large, they're neutral or they're rebuffing the word of God at this point. They're backing away. Jesus is teaching in parables because he doesn't want to overly condemn them. He doesn't want to push them over the edge. He doesn't want to force feed in a way that they will harden their hearts and close off to everything that Jesus is saying, like the Pharisees had done where they committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He's using parables to protect people from themselves. He's also making it palatable so people can be one to the message of the gospel. But now it's coming in parable dress as opposed to a straightforward manner. This is where Jesus is in his third discourse before he heads to Jerusalem to give his life as the Lamb of God. He's teaching in terms of the times and in light of hearts that are opening and closing to the gospel. And this is what we've been saying, seven parables in a series here where seven different sort of secrets or revelations are coming to bear in each parable. We've been learning that this big section is Jesus explaining the cause and the cure for why things are the way they are. Everybody is blind and deaf to the gospel. What's the cause? Well, 
Is it this, 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 this? Is it politics? Is it money? Is it that? It's sin. <laughs> sin. Sin is the problem. And there's only one cure, and that is the grace of the gospel. It comes through the seed of the word of God. That's what he's saying. We unpacked uh, his reference to Isaiah 6, where people are dead and shown to be dead, blind. They're blind to truth. They're deafened to truth. They don't want to hear it unless they are awakened. There's a lot of seeing and hearing in the context leading up to what we're going to unpack this morning. Sightedness and blindness, hearing or being deaf. You see that in the kind of preceding texts. Look at verse 16. But, Jesus says to the disciples, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and they didn't hear it. He's saying, blessed are you. You see with clarity. And you got a lot more revelation in front of you than the prophets did. You hear in a way, not just auditorily, but you're hearing this with your heart. You believe it. You're blessed. And that's where you sit this morning. We are blessed. We need to count the privilege of being able to actually see and hear what Jesus is saying, what he said, and what it means to us today. Because Jesus speaks through his word. And to hearts that are open, we get it. And we understand it. We're not looking down on people who don't. We grieve and pray for people to have seeing and hearing given to them. That's our heart. And Jesus is saying, don't miss the fact that you are hearing this and you're able to understand what I'm speaking to you this morning and, or speaking to you in that context and what I'm preaching from this morning. Verse 18, in light of that, hear then the parable of the sower. In light of the fact that you get it, And you can grasp what I'm about to tell you here. Perk up. Listen to what I'm going to say. And this is an important parable. It's a section that is kind of, uh, it's bracketed and kind of dominated the first, I don't know, chunk of this chapter, the first 23 verses. I mean, the parable of the soils is a big time parable to get because it is the key that unlocks understanding the other parables. I've kind of tried to explain why he was teaching in parables, but you need to understand what this parable means so that you can kind of use it as an overlay on the remaining six parables in this chapter. If you understand the soils, it gives you a context for what Jesus is doing with hearts as they're opening and closing in terms of the gospel. That's what this is about. So if you're taking notes, it's four soils with four explanations, four soils, four explanations, And the first soil is hard soil that's explained. He's detailing what's happening inside the heart. Hard soil, explained, verse 19. Let me just read through our parable here, the explanations, um, so we get it as a unit that will come back. Look at verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what is sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. 
As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what is sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. So you have four soils. We're addressing the first one, which is hard soil. The first three soils are unbelieving soils, and the fourth soil, we'll see, is the good one. This is believing soil. But let's look at the first soil, hard soil. This is anyone, meaning anyone who's coming under the hearing of the kingdom message. Anyone. I've said that everyone is finding themselves in one of these four conditions. The anyone is the broadest of the four soils. This is specifically Jesus saying, I'm bringing you a word of the kingdom right now. I'm the sower. I'm sowing the seed. And anyone who sees that seed but does not understand it, they hear the word of the kingdom and not, don't understand it, the evil one, that's the devil, comes and snatches it away. Just like a bird. He said it earlier. It's like a bird swooping down on Uh, down to the ground where a seed is on top of a well-trodden path. It's a hard-packed dirt surface where the sower or the farmer is walking through the field and this path is worn down and he's scattering seed, but some of the seed falls on the path and that is extreme vulnerability for that seed to be swept up and taken. It's snatched. And you know it, when it rains and you've sown grass seed, the birds come because the seed's just right there on the surface. Easy pickings. People are very vulnerable to reject the gospel when it is given to them, and their heart is hard. It's not penetrating. It's not going in. What is a word of the kingdom? Well, the word of the kingdom is the truth. It's Jesus basically saying there is a division. There's a dividing line in our world. There's the kingdom of God where He is sovereign and ruling and raising up governments, putting governments down. He's raising up kingdoms. He's dominating um, all of the events. And then there's this other kingdom, and that's the kingdom of the devil that is snatching people, that is deluding people, deceiving people from submitting and seeing God's rule as king. There's two rulers. There's the dominant king of kings and lord of lords, and then God has allowed Satan to be the God of this world and deceive and delude people. And Jesus preaching the message of the kingdom is him saying there is the right way, the narrow road, and there's the wide road that leads to destruction. There's a dividing line in this kingdom message. Choose grace. See your sin. Follow Jesus. There are people who hear this message, but they don't understand it. What does that mean? What does it mean they don't understand it notionally? No, they get it. They know what's being said. They just don't embrace it. It's like a kid. Don't play with that neighbor. Don't go out on the street. Don't do that. Don't touch the stove. I know what, he, I know what you're saying, but I'm not going to follow it. I'm not going to take it to heart. That's understanding. I'm taking the message to heart. This message is transforming me from the inside out. It's not staying on the outside, unable to come in. No understanding means you're not placing your faith in the message. 
They know the difference between right and wrong. Romans 2.15, it's the work of the law that's written in the heart. It's conflicting. It's brought a witness in the heart of every person made in the image of God with conflicting thoughts to accuse and excuse them. This is the conscience. The people who have some level of even affection for the Bible but no true faith in God's word, they're most vulnerable. That's Jesus' point. That's a terrible position to be in where you hear the truth, but you're rejecting truth. You're keeping it at arm's length, makes you vulnerable to Satan's swooping attack. And he does that very thing. It's a false sense of security. What does this look like? Well, the Lord is adjudicating hearts in these moments. He's working. And the kingdom is being applied for people's rescue and for people's judgment. It's happening all the time. We pray for soil for. You're probably praying in your seat right now for someone to soften their soil, their rocky soil, their thorny soil. Please, God, change their soil, right? Change their heart. Don't stay in a vulnerable position. Maybe you're praying for somebody that is a hard path. Change their heart, God. We don't want them to be snatched away, but this is the dynamics of what it's going on. One of the soils is hard. Two of the soils are confusing, but all three of those soils are lost soil. Only the fourth is saved soil. They're snatched by 1 John five nineteen, the evil one. We know that we are from God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Let me ask this question. If all of this comes to bear in the life of somebody by them not understanding the word of the kingdom, then what about all the other people in the world that never hear the word of the kingdom? They're never exposed to the word. It's a lot of people all over the world who live and die and never hear a clear presentation of the gospel. How can they be held accountable to be soil one? How are they held under Satan's dominion? How are they snatched away into hell if they never had a chance to believe or disbelieve? That's a question that came to my mind. I've answered it, but I figured I might ask it just in case you're asking it. Um, God is always evangelizing all of the world, all of the time. There's two kinds of revelation. There's special revelation. That's the direct, clear preaching of the gospel. Romans chapter one, verse 16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He preaching the gospel. The just shall live by faith, and you're, you're saved by grace through faith. And that it needs to be clearly preached all over the world, and specifically in my heart, all over Alaska. We need the word of God to go out. But God is also preaching through his creation. Because God is not only Savior, he is creator. He's lauded for both, for all of eternity in heaven's song. See Revelation 4 and 5. Creator, sustainer of life, and he is the Savior. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And his gospel goes out in a way through creation. He's revealing himself through creation. What do I mean by that? Well, it's described in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day to day, day, he is speaking forth. It speaks through creation. Romans 1 specifically tells us of this revelation of himself In 
verses 18 through 20. It begins in verse 16 with special revelation. This is gospel revelation. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1, 16, for it's the power of God of salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and the Greek. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteous shall live by faith. That's the gospel. It's special revelation. General revelation begins at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. What are we talking about? This is the truth reality that there is a designer behind the design. God is revealing himself because his fingerprints are on everything that we see around us in the macro universe, in the micro universe everything in the image of God and just being human, being able to think and feel and react and read and create and love and hate and all of those dynamics in creation from the butterfly to the great white shark. Everything is revealing God's strength and power. What do I mean by that? Verse 19 of Romans 1, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Plain and he's shown it to them for his invisible attributes, meaning characteristics of God, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. God reveals himself through the creation enough to hold the creation accountable to have to repent and say, instead of bowing up at creation, I need to bow down because of creation and say, Lord, you must have designed this. There must be a designer above the design. What people do is they flip-flop that and they worship the creature and the creation and they become naturalists. They become evolutionists and they go, I've got it all figured out. And they're really worshiping themselves as they worship creation and say, I'm the mastermind behind this. And I've got it down. Science is my God. And I'm bowing down to that. Uh, you know, a practical illustration of um, God's design and creation. I was looking at my back deck. My wife's put um, hanging plants along the back um, deck area. And they're beautiful. And they're just splashing with color. And it's Alaska. And it's the drippy, wet, and sunny, you know, climate that just makes this gorgeous sort of flower display. And... Um, it, one of the like shoots from the flower, like the vine, like goes out and starts to connect over here and do this and climb this way and that. It's almost like it's deciding to reach out and grab certain things and do certain things. You've seen that. Well, we know that there's no brain inside that plant, right? We're not singing to the plants unless we're faking ourselves out and thinking something's happening. It's just, but it's God's design and fingerprints all through that lifelike dynamic that a plant can display. A plant that does certain things by cellular design beg for the designer. It begs for us not to worship the plant, but to say God is behind the beauty of that plant. That's God evangelizing the world all the time. The galaxies, the stars, you look at them and you say, man, my finite brain, I can't get my head around how expansive the galaxy is. And we know that, right? No telescope is ever going to really tell us how far the galaxies reach. But guess what? Just because we can't fully grasp how vast the galaxy is or how many grains of sand there are on a beach or how deep the ocean is, just because we can't get our head around all those things doesn't mean those things don't have an end in a, of themselves. They are created. People begin to say, well, I've got it all figured out. 
So I'm worshiping my own brain about how I've got it all figured and this is how big it is or that instead of going, no, I'm bowing to the fact that there's a designer and a creator above all things. That's, that rejection of God as he witnesses through creation is what also hardens the heart. It's what makes a person a hard seed path in the first place. The hardness of heart is what sends you to hell. But the grace of God comes when a seed comes on that hard path. But when they reject that seed... It is damnable. Does that make sense? I hope it does. People are in one of four categories, and people are rejecting truth all the time. I've heard it said, don't call it evolution, call it evolution. Because it is. People can't hear truth. I was reading um, to my, I read to my kids the Chronicles of Narnia just over the years, years and years ago. I haven't done that in a while, but... One of the books, the last book I read to my kids was um, The Magician's Nephew. And um, somebody mentioned this to me um, this week to uh, maybe use this as an illustration of people who they can't hear truth. You're, you're saying it to them and it's powerfully on display and they can't understand it. Well, I kind of dug this out of the internet. It's just an overview of what's going on in The Magician's Nephew. You have four lucky humans, Diggory, Polly, Uncle Andrew and Frank the cabbie, and they're sitting there and they are experiencing Aslan, who is the lion figure, who's kind of the symbol of Christ, who's singing over creation, recreating it, and the animals are coming to life, and the animals are actually beginning to speak in a way that they could understand the animals speaking. The human witnesses, they were amazed, um, but they found that one of their one in their party couldn't understand the animals. It was Uncle Andrew. He couldn't all he could hear was barkings and howlings. It just didn't make sense. Aslan speaking to Diggory, the, the boy figure in that moment, he's wondering why Uncle Andrew can't understand. Aslan says he thinks great folly, child. This world is bursting with life for these few days because the song which I called it into life still hangs in the air and rumbles in the ground. It will not be for so long, but I can not tell to this old sinner and cannot comfort him either. Listen to what he says. He says, he has made himself unable to hear my voice. If I spoke to him, he would hear only growlings and roarings. It's where most of the world is. They might love the Bible. They might study the Bible. They may have Bible degrees. They may have been raised with Bible being prayed and read, prayed over and read at the dinner table. But if their heart isn't soft, they won't really understand the Bible. That's why we come. We come to feast at God's feet as he speaks to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, his word, his word, because we've been blessed to hear it. That's the hard soil. Let's look at the rocky soil. This is the second soil. It narrows the group to supposed believers. We're coming from the world to now the the church world, the church world. These two soils are in the church, rocky soil and thorny soil. These next two soils are in the church. These are the people we know. These are the people who we wonder if they are truly saved or not, not in a judgmental way, but we're asking the questions to ourselves, where's the fruit? Rocky soil is explained in verses 20 and 21. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Two immediate things are happening. Immediate joy 
an immediate fall. There's a pragmatic belief moment, faith moment, and a pragmatic or practical rejection moment that's happening. The rocky soil is not mixed soil. It's not just like soil mixed in rock, like concrete or whatever. It's dirt that is real genuine dirt that's soft, but it's got no depth because there's a rock bed, a limestone bed underneath it. So when the seed hits, dynamic is happening. There's a dynamism there, but it can't penetrate the rock. So all the life shoots up immediately. The person is having a mountaintop experience going, woo, I love the Lord. I love the word. It's an arguably joyful and and demonstrative, and you see the joy. Who's going to argue against the joy that this person is wearing on their sleeve? And apparently, they love the Bible and God's word so much that they get persecuted for this love. This isn't somebody who just has a religious experience for an hour. This is a person who is on rocky ground, who hears the word, so he's hearing it, manifests joy immediately, Yet he's got no root. There's no lifeline there to the Holy Spirit. There's no umbilical cord connection where you can receive nourishment. They're lifeless, really, on the inside. Everything is happening on the outside, but endures for a while. So they're able to hang in there for a little while, but when the tribulation or persecution arises, look at this phrase, on account of the word. This person is persecuted for his or her love for the word of God or a conviction or a spoken witness. When the heat comes on for doing that, immediately he falls away. Immediately it's over. He's tapping out. I presented the word. These people brought the heat. They didn't like what I said. They called me a hater. They called me narrow-minded. They belittled me. They threatened my family. They threatened my job. I'm out. Oh, I was just kidding. I'm not really a person who loves the word or believes that at all. The word for falling away is scandalon. You've heard that word for stumbling over. You hear that word scandal in that. It's the idea that you feel like you've been scandalized for your faith. It's causing you to stumble. You don't like to hurt in the way that you're hurting for your connection to the gospel or the word. It's bringing the heat and it's hurting me. It's messing my life up. So I'm done. So I'm out. It's too hard, so I can't stay in. Dramatic effects happen with uh, rocky soil. Um, John Owen called it the Puritan pastor theologian from London in the 1600s. He called it two-stage illumination. The idea that there's light knowledge of spiritual things that's comprehensive, but it stays superficial. It's naked ascent. It's pre-saving light that disquietes, disquiets the sense of guilt in the soul. It tamps down the guilt for a while, but it's not saving. It's not rooted. It's not lasting. It can't endure the pressure. When the pressure comes, how will you remain? How will you find yourself to be when it comes? Not if it comes. Jesus says, When it comes, it's coming. Jonathan Edwards, he calls this common illuminations. He says that sometimes people are brought to Christ out of this state. You know, there's sort of a pre-cooked dynamic where, you know, some of the frost is knocked off and, and you're warming up. You're, what Jesus said, not far from the kingdom, but you're not in until you're in and you're dangerously out when you're out. Jonathan Edwards in Religious Affections said, many have had strong affections at first conversion. 
meaning a superficial conversion. Afterwards become dry, wither, and consume, and pine, and die away. And now their hypocrisy is manifested, if not to all the world, by open profaneness. All of this is described in Hebrews 6, 4, and 4 through 6. One of the most difficult paragraphs in all of the New Testament for people to understand. Unless you understand it in the context of rocky soil. There are power dynamics that happen in the church where people look alive but really aren't. They start out good and then fall away. Hebrews 6, for it is impossible, verse 4, in the case of those who've once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. A lot of power dynamics here. And then have fallen away. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying, once again, the Son of God to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. To contempt. In other words, God is like, at a certain point when someone's heard so much truth and been exposed to so much light and experienced so much of the power of God, seeing conversions, hearing sermons, redemption stories, on and on, and they just embrace it at a level, but it never takes root. God eventually will let that person go and say, I will now not be mocked. Even in this life, it's hard to argue with somebody who has joy. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So when you, when you see joy, it's amazing. But if it has no root, it will not last. In the 80s, there were a lot of uh, altar calls that I was around. I was raised in a Christian environment. It was more Arminian and a lot of altar calls. I participated in some of those. And a lot of people are moved to have a joy experience, but it's not real. It's not lasting. I used to have Christian school friends. I didn't go to Christian high school, but I had Christian school friends and they would mock the altar call secretly to me as unbelievers. And they would say, you know, I was really trapped, but tripped up by the principal. He had caught me in something and this and this, and I'm getting demerits or I'm uh, in detention. And, you know, so I had during chapel, I had to go, go forward at the altar and get that right, right? Get that right. And getting it right got him out of trouble. It's funny, but it's not funny. People try to get their get-out-of-jail-free card with religious experiences and say, I'm good again. It's the same thing that the Roman Catholics do with you know, doing penance and confession. It's like, I've done this thing, so that gets me okay. It's the life support system that goes on Christian school kids, and we have to watch out for it even here. But um, there's Bible classes. There's uh, ways to be trained. There's a lot of props that are put around a student to make them feel alive. You can feel emotionally alive and moved in a Christian school environment. I saw it in Christian college as well. When they graduate though, what happens? When the heat comes on, when the pressure is there and there aren't the props, the life support system is pulled off, the nasal can is pulled out and you are vulnerable. If you have no root, if you have no connection to the Holy Spirit, if this is not a true understanding of scripture that is your own faith that you believe in the Lord, you wither. People will also try to pragmatically save their kids through baptism. I don't even just mean that in the Presbyterian church, but um, you know, even in the baptistry. My kid professes faith. Let's get him dunked quick before it goes away. And that's not the true root of the gospel. I will baptize any kid who is wanting to stand for Christ, is clear on the gospel, and has made a life commitment and is manifesting fruit. That's what it means to be a believer. That's just being a Christian, whatever age you are. It's not an age thing, but it is a, 
It's an acknowledgement that there's true accountability that's brought to bear in this moment as you profess your faith and say, I am a committed Christian. If you're pragmatically saved, you'll be pragmatically lost. If you're genuinely saved, you'll stand and you'll persevere. It's the doctrine of perseverance. It's enduring the trials. You say, well, how do you measure this? Well, the measure of someone's salvation is not their joyful countenance. It's not how excited they are. A lot of people have extroverted personalities and they're going, that's passing for saving faith. The, The mark of someone who is truly saved is solely perseverance. It's that they're persevering in their faith. They're manifesting the fruit of the spirit. Otherwise, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Test yourself. Whoa, do I see it or not? That's the dynamic of affirmation. It's not an altar call experience or a religious moment or signing a card or joining the church like you're joining the Alaska club. That's not, that's not conversion. Conversion is measured in time. Time and truth go hand in hand always. Time and truth go hand in hand. Be sure your sin will find you out. Eventually you'll know. Those who, 1 John 2, they went out from us. They were not of us for if they'd been with us. Um, been of us they, and continued with us, um, you know, there would have been vindication, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us, for John 2.19. The immediate, the word immediately is just something I don't want you to miss. Immediate joy and immediately falling away. Easy come and easy, easy go. It's all pivoting on the word and the response to the word of God. Now, I don't want to completely bash altar calls. When I was um, 17, I went to a youth conference with a couple thousand kids there and, you know, popular youth speaker, popular youth worship leader. And I was put there um, by my youth pastor and parents wanted me to be there and praying for my soul because I was not a true Christian. I was a rocky soil person, unsaved kid. I'd been baptized at seven I'm not saying you can't be baptized at seven. For me, I was moved emotionally, but I was not his. I was not an affirmed believer at seven. And by the time I was 17, it was the summer before my senior year. It was the exact time of of life that we're in right now, right before you're going into your, your school year. And I'm going into my senior year, and I'm rocky soil. And me and my buddy are standing there, and he's a pastor now, saved. And we were 30 years ago sitting next to each other, and we're going, should we go forward at the altar call? And hundreds of kids flooded forward at the altar call. Very wooing, very emotional. But then I was brought to the back area with hundreds of kids and counselors. And this counselor grabbed me and my friend by the neck and prayed with us and gave us the gospel. He actually sowed gospel seed into our hearts and was praying for us and with us. We thought something had happened from that. We were emotionally moved. I think seeds were planted. I think I was in the sort of common illuminations moment. I was in a, like a not far from the kingdom moment. Seed was sown. But I was counseled by a mentor of mine who said, be careful. And he was a believer. He was trying to win me to Christ. I don't think you fully believed. I think you had a religious experience. We need to test this now. So I was kind of discouraged from that. But thinking that through, and that was helpful because I was not yet converted as a Christian. Later on, by October, I genuinely was committing my life to Christ, understanding who Christ was, loving the Lord by his word. The Lord was opening my heart, and I was manifesting fruit. 
It's interesting. I looked at my testimony and struggled a lot from age um, 17 to 22 because I went to Bible college and I went to seminary and I'm like, I feel called to preach. One day I'm going to be standing in front of people. I better have done it right where I actually got baptized after I believe I was converted. And so I got baptized again and was baptized at Grace Community Church at 22 years old and gave my testimony as a starting seminary student that I needed to follow the Lord in obedience. And it's a real deal. And um, that's how I understand my salvation. Um, 30 years from that altar call experience, I'm standing at the Together for the Gospel conference. Uh, that conference has been going for a decade. It just ended. Um, they, they had the last conference, but I went to one a couple years ago from here. It's 10,000 people in the Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. And 10 feet in front of me in the crowd, right in front of me, this guy turns around. He's seated right in front of me. There was sort of the walkway gap. He turns around, recognizes me and says, I was the guy that prayed with you at the altar call. And I know your dad, my dad and I, I, my dad with him, they were praying in the background behind the scenes at work every day for my salvation. Now, so I can't diss the altar call all the way, right? But it wasn't the altar call that saved me. And me and this guy, I mean, we're looking eye to eye. And he's like, I remember that moment. I remember praying with you. And I'm like, here I am. I'm a pastor and, and a Christian, more importantly. I'm, I'm here. And we just smiled at that experience. But more importantly, we looked at it and said, God's sovereign grace is so amazing. He had this whole plan and this whole design to save me by his grace. Sin is the cause. Grace is the cure. The word of God is the means to get to grace. Seed, we are reacting to the seed and he was the sower and I was responding. And ultimately my rocky soil heart became soft soil, good soil. Let's look at the the third soil. It's thorny soil. This is the most deceptive soil in the church. The, The hard path soil for us as believers is we see people reject and it's snatched away. That's pretty obvious. The rocky soil where people or flash in the pan, they're, they're, you know, they're happy and then they're just kind of gone. We can kind of discern that. The thorny soil is the most difficult to discern in our own lives or the lives of others. This is a soil that looks like it's actually taking root, but really it's getting in. Your, the life that's going down in the dirt is getting entwined with the weeds that are coming up, the thorns that eventually choke out the life that you think is there. And what does that look like practically? This is the soil of compromise. This is the soil of having a divided heart. It's verse 22. For what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of the riches of riches choke the word, strangulate the word. The word goes in the head. The choke mechanism are these two temptations, worry, and it's a sin that so many people nurture in their own heart as a professing Christian. And we all have to kill worry. We all have to cast the cares upon the Lord because he cares for us. But if worry, if you have one foot in the world and you're like, I'm gonna keep some concern here for the world and one foot in the kingdom, then you really are not in the kingdom at all. It's a divided heart where, where the word can't really get from your head to your heart because you're being choked out in the process. You're being bound up with worry. Well, what are you worried about? Well, I like to tie these two temptations together. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of the riches of riches choke the word. Your care for the world is your love for money. 
You've been lied to. Money will fix your life. If you just had a little bit more, then you'd be fine. Everybody who's rich that's divided in their heart where they're serving God and money, God and mammon, they're divided that way. They're going, I've got some money and I'm terrified to lose it because if I lose it, then my life's going to be lost. Uh, I, on the other hand, if I only had enough money, then I would be happy and I'm afraid I'm not going to get it. Both are sins. Both are two sides of the same coin where you're trusting in money. It's a lie to trust in money. It's a divided heart. Somebody says they are experiencing an anxiety attack. Really, they have primed the pump with their own choice to worry for so long that ultimately the gasket blows and they blame the gasket blowing as an outside attack instead of the choice to worry and sow the seed for so long before things give way. And it's horrible. It's horrible to experience these things. I'm not minimizing the, the feel of attack in that moment, but there's worrying over money, over life, over how you can control the circumstances of your own life with having enough money. Like, I want to be in the seat of power in my own life. I don't want to bow before the Lord. I want to bow up before God in the name of money. God says you can't do it. You can't serve two masters. You either serve Christ or you serve money. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. You can't be consumed with that. The love of money is the root of all evil, and it will pierce you through. Let's go to the fourth soil quickly, verse 23, the good soil. This is what we're praying for. We're praying that people are not hard soil that just immediately reject. We're praying they're not rocky soil that has no root, no lifeline to God whatsoever. And we're praying that people are not thorny soil where they are sown in the soil of compromise and choked out, being divided. We want the fourth soil, which is good soil, verse 23. And for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. Direct opposite of the first soil, by the way. They didn't understand the word of the kingdom. You actually do understand it. And indeed, bears fruit and yields. In one case, 100. Another 60. Another 30. Um, It's a person who believes the truth. You're believing the word of God and you're set free. You have an undivided heart. Yeah, we have to steward our money. God provides for us. We have to be careful. We have to be givers. We have to be generous but you're not ruled by the world anymore. You're not ruled by your flesh anymore. You've got the power of the spirit to kill sin in your life. You're not buying the lie of Satan anymore. You're saying Jesus is all in all. And everybody's in one of these four soils. And praise God, I'm in the fourth soil. I might've been in another soil, but God, you changed the outlook for my life because you softened the soil of my heart. And you know you're a Christian because you understand truth. Not just up here, but you believe it by conviction. And you believe it by a conviction at a level that it is transforming your life and you are naturally bearing fruit. You say, am I a 30, 60, or 100? Well, it's not you're an A student, B student, or C student. I'm glad, by the way, to get C's and pass. That's me. I, I was that student. I'll be glad to be in heaven and just have no condemnation status. Woo, I'm in. I'm good. I'm not trying to graduate with honors. I'm just thankful to be on the narrow path. Trusting grace alone. However, um, 30, 60, and 100 fold um, as a ratio balanced to what you sowed and what you reaped are massive yields in the agricultural world. 8% was what was expected. 
in an ancient Palestinian agrarian society, 30% is massive. 60% is outstanding. 100% doesn't happen, except in the kingdom. These are, these are observable, affirmable, readily explainable um, amounts of fruit that where someone says, that is a believer. That is a believer. The Christian life is... It's confusing because you have people who are in the different soils, but when someone is demonstrably a believer, you see it and you know it. This is when someone truly has understanding. They believe. They're converted. In the 90s, there was a debate um, between in salvation and in, in the topic of salvation. Early, late 80s, early 90s, it was the lordship Salvation controversy. Some of you remember that. John MacArthur wrote the book, The Gospel According to Jesus. And then a professor countered that book. He was a Dallas Theological Seminary professor, Zane Hodges, who wrote the book, Absolutely Free. So it was Gospel According to Jesus versus Absolutely Free. And you'd see them on the shelf next to each other in pastor's offices. Lordship Salvation is basically saying, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised from the dead, then you'll be saved. You're bowing the knee knee to the lordship of Christ, and you're assuming there's going to be fruit from that. The accusation from the other camp was, that's Roman Catholicism. If you're including any fruit, any works in salvation, that's Roman Catholicism, so that's not the gospel. It's all by grace. Well, guess what? It is all by grace. This is solved very simply. It's the fruit doesn't save you, but the fruit is necessary to validate that you're saved in the first place. We are saved by grace alone, but that grace alone is never going to ultimately be alone because it's, we're saved by faith alone, but it's never an alone faith. When you believe, you're going to manifest fruit. That's the point of James. That's what he said. Faith without works is what? Dead. It's dead. It's not real. Even the demons, same word, believe. Even the demons are expressing a superficial faith and shudder. You're going to produce fruit if you're saved. No fruit, no salvation. Fruit means salvation. True fruit, lasting fruit, demonstrative fruit, not rocky soil fruit that withers under pressure. Long, enduring fruit means you're saved. That's not what got you saved. It proves that you're saved. Paul was fighting a different battle in the book of Romans where he's saying we're saved by grace through faith alone. Ephesians, we're saved by grace Not by works, lest any man should boast. Works do not save. Works prove that you are saved. That's the point. Which outcome are you? Which reaction are you to the word of God? Which one are you? You are one of four. Are you the first one, the second one, the third one, or by God's grace, the fourth one? If you think you're in soils two or three, please repent. Repent your way into soil four. Say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I can't save myself. I can't do anything to earn my salvation. Save me. I want to understand. I want to know you. I want to see and hear truth on a convictional level. I want to believe this. Transform my life and save me. And if you call out to God, John 6, 37 says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Never cast out. So come to Christ.